0: this is Liz Williams and I'm here at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum with Chef Byron Bradley who is a classically cha- uh, trained chef and he has been mentored by Chef Leah Chase and by Chef John Besh. So we're here today to talk a little bit about giving cooking classes inside of a museum here on Nitty Grits and the name of our podcast is Tip of the Tongue. So welcome byron
1: thank you
0: thank you so now that uh you've been here for a while and you've done some classes here what does it feel like doing classes here in the museum as opposed to doing classes in other locations
1: ah yes to do classes in a museum i find that that people um typically patronize museums have a bit of history themselves uh, or at least knowledge of history and uh, It's always funny to have students that are willing to teach you something <laughs> As well as they're willing to come to learn. Um, it's it's more fun of an atmosphere having those types of students you know, they're, they're they're ready to challenge your knowledge and add to what you're teaching um, in my opinion um,
0: And so do you feel that Having that kind of student is really different because I know you've taught classes outside of the museum How is it different in terms of just teaching?
1: Uh, It's different in terms of teaching because I'm forced to know more about what it is I'm teaching because of the types of students I get here Uh, the students I get here are are ready and ready in many ways with uh, knowledge that uh, they've either experienced themselves from the history of the food that they've been eating or um, have been curious about and came specifically to a museum to figure out if they were were true or not. Um, So as an instructor, I am forced to be more prepared with the knowledge and experience that I have teaching the students here that come prepared and ready with questions.
0: So when you were teaching here at the museum, when something is cooking, do you send them off into the museum to see things or do you keep them close the whole time?
1: Ah, So in, in my classes that I've taught here, most of them were designed for them to be able to get everything done quickly without a break. Uh, but because we were in the museum, um, I do now try to find a way to create recipes that allow them time to vine, you know, to wander off and enjoy the museum for what it is. And in doing that, it uh, it just adds the appreciation for this museum to the students. And also, they have the opportunity to find something in relevance to what I'm teaching them in the museum. So it, it works out very well to, to give them time to walk around.
0: And do they come back with questions?
1: Indeed, yeah. That was the next thing, yes. The students always come back with either a reference to something that I've taught them in the class or uh, a question about something they're, they're, they're inquiring about.
0: So give me an example.
1: Uh, a perfect example is uh, Chef Chase. Like a lot of, a lot of what I do and teach, um, I've learned from Chef Chase. And in this particular class, I was teaching something about gumbo, and the students walked around, saw Chef Chase's mural in her painting. And wanted, and were very inquisitive as to the design of her her painting. It actually, had nothing to do with food. At so
0: all. let me break in here and talk about that mural for a moment. Right. So this is a mural that was done by Max Bernardi, mm-hmm. and it is a, her representation of what Dookie Chase, the restaurant that was owned by Leah Chase, um, looked like hurricane
1: Katrina. Right, 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 right. Okay, so go on. So with that, with that said, the question of the student was, what is this picture depicting? And uh, it's, that's always a very interesting question to me is uh, because it's, it depicts something so specific, you know? Mm-hmm. So the first thing I would usually ask a student that asked me that question is, uh, what do you see? You know, and um, a lot of the responses vary uh, from, well, it looks like a restaurant that's, you know, maybe closed down or... Uh, it looks like uh, two people are heading to, you know, enjoy a, a certain space that's a little beat up. <laughs> so it's always interesting to to, to clarify what uh, what the debris truly is. And once you start to point out the specifics about the painting that that uh, that give off the There's meaning,
0: actually a FEMA trailer in the background. Yes, FEMA trailer. And there's yes. a water
1: line. Yes. Um, there are patched-up windows, are debris on the street. You know, there are many little things that only someone that is experienced Katrina would necessarily know. So it's always interesting to get people that that have no idea of what Katrina truly was on a personal level inquire about the picture. You know, and I'm able to explain the little differences that you would know. You know, the FEMA trailer, the the debris, and things of that nature. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's one very common question that I get from the students that wander around the museum.
0: And were you actually talking about uh, Chef Chase during your, your uh, presentation or, and, and when you were teaching people? Or did they just come back and know that you had been um, one of mentees? Oh, no.
1: Yes, I, I'm pretty much every class that I teach, I mention Chef Chase's name and her influence on my, my culinary uh, resume and my. Culinary presence in this city, because uh, she is she she was a very big part of my growth uh, as a chef. Uh, so I appreciate her, and I make sure to say something about her involvement in my career as much as possible.
0: Uh, it must be really tough now that she's gone.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. She she grew to be a very good friend and, and mentor of mine. Um, She helped me specifically uh, get into what I'm doing now as a chef instructor um, and helped me truly not just get into it, but help appreciate what I have to give to this this part of my career. um, She's very influential in installing that inspiration in me. and it, it lasted, and I, I will be forever grateful to her for that and make sure every class I say something about her. <laughs> yes,
0: I mean, it, we were so excited to be able to name the gallery after her, yes. and she came, so when we were first opened and we had our first uh, home at the Riverwalk, she came to that, and oh, nice. we did a big dedication, and then when we rededicated the space to her here, Marcus Samuelson came down, and we had Mardi Gras Indians come, and it was just a really very exciting. So she has been so supportive of what we've done. So that's been um, exciting. So I know how wonderful she is. Yeah. She's just really, and I keep saying she is, but she was. But nevertheless, I feel like her spirit is still alive, right. even, even though she's, she's not with us anymore. Right,
1: right, right, yes. Yes, I miss her much.
0: So, what else have um, your students found in the museum?
1: Ah, uh, Subtle connections between um, the differences in Creole and Cajun cooking Mm or something else that uh, come up quite often in my classes and the questions are uh, sort of birthed out of their strolls through the museum seeing different depictions of what is Cajun and what is Creole cooking. Um, so that is a, a huge question I get from the students. What is Creole and what is Cajun cooking and the differences. Uh, and my answer to that is always starts, my answer to that always starts with uh, the cultural differences between Cajuns and Creoles. Mm-hmm. You know, um, To get into that, uh, Cajuns were specifically uh, French that migrated down from Canada after after the war with Britain. Uh, The term Cajun is truly just a mispronunciation of Canadian French. uh, Acadians. Acadian French, Uh yes. uh, Passed down just, I mean, the word... Just translated from mispronunciation, Creoles or people that are collective. The Creole is different everywhere you go. It's a collective of. Uh,
0: there are probably a thousand
1: definitions of Creole. Thousand uh, definitions, yes, yes. Uh, they're typically just the people that are that have been cultivated from cultures that settled in a certain area. So the Creoles here are, of course, a cultivation of uh, French, Spanish, uh, African, uh, Native Indian. Um, those cultures and how food has blended between those cultures is what we now have as Creole food. So with that description um, I usually start to answer that question and from there it gets specific to most of the dishes within Creole food is also not mimicked but also a part of Cajun just just prepared slightly differently with each dish. For an example um, when you talk about etouffee, you know, there's a Creole version and there's a Cajun version. Same with most of the dishes in these cuisine. Um the simple, like any
0: coffee? More coffee?
1: <laughs> uh, the simplest difference between the way those two cultures make the same dish is the addition of tomatoes and not tomatoes. You know, for One simple example of the differences, but the similarities within the, the cuisine. Um, so, yes, that's another very common question, Creole and Cre- Creole and Cajun, what are the differences? Mm-hmm. And a lot of that questions come from their strolls throughout the museum seeing those depictions. Right,
0: right. So, did you find that the uh, facility here gave you what you needed to do your classes?
1: Indeed. I mean, this is a dream kitchen for any chef that wants to uh, teach a class, wants to have a pop-up, wants to uh, do a demonstration. We have cameras here that will show you exactly what you're doing over a cutting board or over the stove. Yeah, so this is a dream kitchen for anyone in this field that wants to share their food or history in food. Um, and I am honored to be here. <laughs> uh, everything I need is, is truly here. Uh, even the history of what it is I'm teaching people. You know, there are small examples of that throughout the museum, whether it be a, a tool or a story of a chef, you know, nine times out of ten, if it has something to do with food, it's, it's, it's in this building. So, yeah, this is a great space for anything in food.
0: So, one of the things that we always get questions about is the fact that we allow people to eat and drink in the museum. And most museums are pretty strict about not letting that happen. Uh-huh. So how do you think oh. that your students feel about that? Because they're really right in the museum.
1: Right, right. I think that's another very simple difference between other cities and New Orleans. <laughs> so much of the culture in New Orleans is based on food and drink, you know. So in a museum that, that represents both of those that's what you're gonna do, you're gonna eat and drink
0: <laughs> here. So,
1: and again, that just, that just points back to the culture of New Orleans being a, a space that food and drink is, is celebrated. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the students take that in awe. Like, oh my God, this is gonna be amazing. I can eat and drink at the same place. <laughs> Welcome to New Orleans is the first thing I would think to say is those types of students, you know. And this is the perfect place to, to have that type of atmosphere where people recognize the connection we have here, how deeply rooted the connection between food and music, I mean food and wine. And yeah. just
0: drinking at both times.
1: Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Oh, every, every meal we have a set standard of drinks that are typically served in this city. Um, and it, same thing with the, the foods, sets of different traditions and recipes that are commonly served with common alcoholic beverages. It's a pleasure to teach those histories and connections here in the museum while you're enjoying them.
0: So tell me a little bit about what menu you usually bring to the, um, to the class and what you like to teach.
1: So the classes I teach in this museum are called the uh, Southern Favorites Cooking Classes. And each month I cater to a different state, in the diff, a different state of the southern um, providence of this country. Um, and each month I cater to the, the specific favorites of that state. For example, um, with Florida, uh, Florida has a huge Latin influence from Cuba and uh, the Caribbean Islands, so a lot of favorite dishes there are uh, influenced from those different cultures. So. The classes I taught here catered to Florida were conch fritters. Um, and
0: I ate your conch fritters, and oh, yes. they were really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah, she did
1: conch fritters. We did Cuban sandwiches, mm-hmm. and what else was in the class? I don't, <laughs> don't remember Cuban what Cuban sandwiches, else we had, yeah. conch fritters, and it was something else. Oh, I forget. <laughs> was it a
0: salad with papaya or something no,
1: like that? No, no, no. What was that? What was that did we flow? do something with shrimp? Yeah. Comfort sandwich. Why is this not there? Wow, that's crazy. Well, for something me, else. Something else, right? <laughs> uh, each and each state is catered to something like that, you know, for uh, another example, the Mississippi. Uh, I taught Mississippi mud pie. We did uh cornbread dressing and we also did uh pickle fried chicken, which is a Mississippi favorite. Now, one specific thing that I like to do with each class is not only teach the favorites of each state, but also infuse a bit of New Orleans into each dish that I'm teaching. So for example, with the, the Mississippi mud pie, it was a tr- Mississippi mud pie is a traditional chocolate cake that's served with just layers of chocolate topped with um, with a whipped cream and more shaved chocolate. Uh, to throw a New Orleans twist to this dish, I utilized uh, marsh capone in the whipped cream. Mm-hmm. And instead of just shaved chocolate on top, I put uh, candied pecans. Uh-huh. So, another addition of New Orleans. So, just changing up little things that that would.
0: And so the, the mascarpone reflects the Sicilians who came to, oh, yes. Uh, yes, to New yes. Orleans. Yes, yeah. Mascarpone
1: yeah. is a very very famously used cheese, soft sweet cheese here in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, the candy pecans, another thing that was made famous here. Uh, the history of carline goes way back to uh, the Dukes of, uh, I forget where they're from...
0: Uh, of the, the Duke de Perland. That's yeah. a name. Yeah, Duke uh-huh. de Perland.
1: I can never pronounce it. Uh, but the history is very simple. This specific duke loved to have her her servant make these pecans. Uh, make this actually wasn't pecans. It was um, almonds. Almonds, almonds yeah. with uh, brown sugar, and that made them more digestible. <laughs> and so it became a very famous thing in, in Paris and in France to, to, to dress nuts in some type of sugary substance to make digestion easier. <laughs> but when it, they were uh, in colonization, when the French came here, the more readily available nut was pecan. Uh, the traditional methods were literally just brown sugar uh, cooked over these these nuts. Um, and of years. course
0: sugar was grown here so that yes. made sugar very available. Right,
1: right, right, right. So so many little things that, that added to the history of, of what makes this this culture's food right so uh, so great around the world. Right. <laughs> so many different influences, you know, and we only took from the best of each influence. <laughs> well, we
0: we had so much to choose from that was possible. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. 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 And so how do you feel about Uh, people who try to draw a line and say, okay, if it happened before this time, it was Creole food, and anything that has been introduced into the New Orleans canon since then is not Creole food. It might be New Orleans food, but it's not Creole food. Personally, I am of the belief that it keeps changing and evolving, and so you can't draw a line and say oh well when the sicilians came or when the vietnamese came and started to, all these different things that have changed our food um i just consider it all creole creole cuisine right, um, right right, but i have spoken to people who feel like okay it's not creole anymore once we became american mm-hmm. it stopped being cre. you know we all the people who were born here after we were american or who emigrated here or whatever just became american and we're no longer creole but i feel like creole has come to mean in its thousands of meanings right new orleans food
1: right right, right. and
0: so if we eat it here
1: <laughs> it's creole food right, right, right
0: how do you feel about that
1: uh that's a good point because that that's that that points directly to a big premise of how i like to teach and uh, the premise of how i like to continue being an instructor and that is by teaching the culture of food not also, not only the technique but the culture of food where these things came from and how they've changed to this day um, so uh, i agree with you and they're not being aligned but there also always should be an explanation of where these things came from and where it evolved to this, you know, mm-hmm. to, not to draw a line saying this is no longer that, but at least recognizing where it came from to get mm-hmm. to that point mm-hmm. is a big premise of how I like to instruct. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that's very important in regards to teaching people about food. Now that we're in a world where everything is starting to fuse, it's, it's harder to pinpoint what came from where, so as long as we're able to continuously document and explain the levels of how things have grown, where they grew from, and why they grew to this level. I think you you should never be able to draw a line if you just keep it documented where these things came from.
0: Well, I think there's a big difference between creolization, which is what I call the fact that we've begun to absorb the food of all of the immigrants who've come here, Mm -hmm. and fusion. I feel like fusion is a chef-invented thing. Where a chef says, I like this, and I like that, and I think we can put them together, and it would be interesting. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying, that's chefs who are thinking and putting things together. Whereas creolization kind of happens organically, where people, even home cooking, say, well, I ate at my neighbor's house, and they did this. I like that. I'm going to incorporate that in my food too. And so you start to see things merging together simply because people like it Mm -hmm. or because it's an interesting twist or whatever. And it happens naturally Mm -hmm. instead of by invention of a person who kind of puts it together. And they're both, they're both important, so I'm not trying to say one is better than the other, but I think they are two different phenomena.
1: Right, right. And to add to that, uh, creolization of things was also, in my opinion, came about through uh, bridging the gap between those cultures, per se. In your example, your neighbors are two completely different cultures mm-hmm. making the same dish. And I go to their house, and they're making it with this because of that, because of their lack of of a certain ingredient they replaced it with something and you're Um, like oh well in my culture we make it this way but we use this so it's always interesting to see it naturally evolve from people utilizing things they didn't have before to make the same dish Uh I think that's a big part of of creolization is adjusting to your surroundings as you're learning to use things that you're not used to
0: so I can give you a great example so my grandmother came from Palermo Mm -hmm. So, obviously, she cooked food from Sicily. But she lived in Lakeview, and next to her was, uh, next door, was somebody who was Jewish, and so she invited my grandmother over, and my grandmother, who had the strongest accent... um, understood gefilte fish Mm -hmm. to be filthy fish and she comes back and she loves she's now telling us that she loves filthy fish and we're thinking what is filthy fish and so she of course not understanding that filthy fish doesn't sound very appetizing um is trying to convince us that we need to eat this. Mm-hmm. And, of course, once we finally do, we think, oh, yes, gefilte fish. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, but then she started to put capers on top, okay. and she did some other little things to it that were very Sicilian, mm-hmm. and she served it with green olives, <laughs> which is very not Jewish. Right. And, uh, and it was delicious. And so now we always it filthy fish right, because right. of my grandmother <laughs> but you know here she is accepting this thing that she's eaten at her neighbor's house mm-hmm. and thinks it's delicious
1: Right, right. even but, changed the name
0: <laughs> yes exactly but also then made it her own by adding the green olives and uh, capers uh-huh. and so that's the way we eat it at my house now is with Green olives and capers, because nice. that's the way my grandmother served it. <laughs>
1: nice, nice. So, another pure example of, of creolization. Creolization, yes,
0: exactly. Right. Yes. A beautiful yes. thing. Yes. The other thing that I think is really important that I think we take for granted, but we should really appreciate, is that if I eat your gumbo, it's going to be different from my gumbo, since every person's gumbo is different. Literally. But I recognize that when I eat your gumbo, it's gumbo. And when you eat mine, you recognize that it's gumbo. And it's what connects us, that ability to know it's gumbo. Right. And so we're connected by that, that understanding. And I have seen people who have grown up in other states in other places, and their, their parents or grandparents were from Louisiana or New Orleans. And these people have not been to Louisiana or New Orleans. And the only gumbo they've ever eaten is their parents' gumbo or their grandparents' gumbo. So instead of having tasted this huge variety of gumbos that are out there, they've only tasted this one gumbo. And they only eat it for some special occasion or whatever. And they come to New Orleans and they say, nobody here knows how to make gumbo. I know how to make gumbo because I ate it because my grandmother cooked it or whatever. And they don't recognize that gumbo, everyone's gumbo is different. Right. And they think that what they ate was some sort of representation of what gumbo is. This is the gumbo. Right. And I find that to be really interesting, to see the difference between the way people who grew up here see it, Mm -hmm. and the way people who come back here from some idealized gumbo experience see it. Um, Because I would never tell you your gumbo is not gumbo. I know it's gumbo, but these are people who say, that's not
1: gumbo. Right, right, right. That's interesting. I actually did a competition in New York, uh the almost famous chef's competition in New York, uh, St. Pellegrino's, yes. They hosted Almost Famous Chef competition. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the participants two thousand sixteen. And I made a deconstructed gumbo for my mm-hmm. um, for the competition. Uh and for that I made a an oven roux, an oven oil based roux. Um uh Instead of the traditional things that we use in the city, I use scallops, uh, Swiss chard, uh, shrimp and andouille, Uh, but it was deconstructed. So I stuffed the Swiss chard, the rainbow chard with uh, the shrimp and andouille mixture. Um, And I made the roux, the sauce, table side pour. So I I basically cooked the roux and Made a stock with uh, crawfish heads and crawfish uh, carcasses with all of the holy trinity and everything else, and basically made a soup out of that and strained off everything and kept it to the side. So then when I pour in uh, in your bowl, you'll have literally the roux sauce. Mm-hmm. Um, and in your bowl was the stuffed chard and uh, seared scallops.
0: No rice. No rice. No, okay. no.
1: Yes, rice chip. I made a rice chip.
0: Oh, okay. Yes.
1: Okay. Yes. So a deep fried rice chip. And that's what's in your bowl. The rice chip, the seared scallop, and the stuffed Swiss chard. Uh-huh. And I would table-side pour the roux. So that was, that was my dish for this competition. And I had judges that were not from New Orleans. And be like, this is not gumbo. <laughs> so it's interesting that you say that, that. Everyone's depiction of what gumbo is, and everyone's, everyone uh, that has had gumbo has this, this natural right of saying, well, this is and this is not gumbo. And... That's truly not the case.
0: If you're from New Orleans, you know what gumbo is. Right, right, right. And I would recognize that as gumbo. Exactly, exactly.
1: There's slight, similar, slight differences to what I added to the gumbo and things of that nature, but that was definitely a gumbo.
0: But if you can make gumbo out of squirrel or possum or pigeon or whatever you've got, and so for somebody to say, oh, you can't put this in gumbo, they don't have any idea what it is. Exactly.
1: Yeah, quite exactly. And that, <laughs> that's the point I made. Like, gumbo is, is what you make it, you know. It's, and the history of where gumbo came from and how it's utilized is different everywhere, everywhere. So for someone to say, oh, that's not gumbo, yeah, they do not know what gumbo is.
0: <laughs> and also, even root, because the Native people made this wonderful stuff that might have a whole cup of file in it right. to thicken it. And there's no root because right. they didn't have flour. Right, right, right. Because flour came with the Europeans. Right. So there was no flour to even pick from. Right. And okay. so gumbo isn't about even roux or anything. Right. It's it's something else. Right, right. And we just somehow know it. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's why we have a cuisine, because we recognize it in each other. Right, you know? right, right. right. So.
1: The lineage is passed down in so many different ways, but uh-huh. it's still understood uh-huh. to be the same thing, you know?
0: I can remember uh, when people would serve something, and I would know that it wasn't Creole; it was Cajun, mm-hmm. and I could never explain why. <laughs> and I knew it—I mean, I just knew it—but right, right. I couldn't tell you why. But now, of course, I'm better about explaining the, mm-hmm. the why. But um, uh, and it's more mixed today. I think we have much more Cajun influence than we did when I was a child, mm-hmm. because you've got better highways and all kinds of things that make um, communication easier. And I also think that during the World's Fair in the 1980s, we had this one pavilion that was the Louisiana pavilion Mm -hmm. and we had food stands all throughout the pavilion. And the food vendors didn't say this is Cajun or this is Creole or whatever. And you were, let's say, uh, a, a food journalist who was sent down from Bon Appetit or Gourmet Magazine or some magazine to come cover the food during the, the, uh, the, uh, the World's Fair mm-hmm. that was in New Orleans. That was in 1984. And uh, so you come in and you go to the Louisiana Pavilion and you eat food at all these different stations that are there. And you don't know what's Creole, what's Cajun, or anything right. like that. So you write your article, because you're only here three days or two days or whatever, and it all happened in Louisiana, in New Orleans, and so that's all you know. So your, your article is Cajun slash Creole cuisine, mm-hmm. or Creole dash, you know, Cajun cuisine, whatever. You don't know the difference. You don't know what's Cajun and what's Creole because so you just know you <laughs> ate it in New Orleans. Right, right. And then people started to come down here and ask for fish and they wanted Cajun food. And of course, we're all about hospitality. And if you want Cajun food, okay, we can do that. Mm-hmm. And so now it's a lot more mixed together, which is not a bad thing, it just is. But I can remember as a child, it would be like people's whistles, their hackles would go up if you said, this is Cajun. It's like, no, it's real. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. But now I think people are a little looser about that, mm-hmm. and they're willing to let that slide. Right, right, right.
1: right. Uh,
0: but there was a time when that was an important difference.
1: Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Uh, again, as a chef instructor, I, I just make sure to, to keep the differences in mind and known. Uh, it's not it's necessarily important to to depict the differences in every dish but uh-huh. to teach the history of each dish and where the differences come from uh-huh. is most important to me as a chef instructor
0: So, thanks Byron I really appreciate your coming today and for everybody listening thanks for listening this is Tip of the Tongue you can find Tip of the Tongue on the Nitty Grits Network at part of the National Food and Beverage uh, Foundation's website at natfab.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.